from the edifice of Artemis Studios in lovely Cleveland, Ohio, this is the edifice of our demise. Hello all and welcome to the edifice of our demise, the show that takes a loving and longing look at the harbingers of our own doom. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, and joining me this first week of November is a man who, in the football game of life, he's the punter. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Weinberg. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. I don't quite know what that means, but all right. It means you've, are, you're, you're the embodiment of conceding. I see. Yes. Okay. All right. You're, you're really the, the, the person who, uh, when all else fails, is brought out. Kind of uh, a failsafe, if you will. I'm a last resort. A that little bit. Right. A little yeah. bit. Okay. You know, some all people right. argue that the punt is the most important play uh, in all of football. And then there's others that argue you should never punt because the utility of an extra down every four plays is more than enough to offset the field position that you will yield by giving the ball away on purpose. You know, it's really a fascinating statistical argument that I have no intention of going into further. Well, perhaps we should proceed then. <laughs> all right. Uh, ben, are you ready for a little doom or duh? Duh. Wait. Oh, okay. I see what you did there. All right, Ben. Doom or duh time. We have a full slate here. Uh, quite a few topics. Let's get to it. The World Health Organization declaring bacon and hot dogs to be contributors of cancer. Doom or duh? Doom. All right. Uh, what is uh, like a sub doom or duh? Yes. What's worse, cancer causing hot dogs or hot dogs containing human DNA? Ooh. Um, tricky. I'm going to go with the DNA because I feel like once people realized that these things cause cancer, there was a split second where they thought, oh, no. And then there was another split second where they thought, yeah, and that's not going to change. <laughs> They're like, yeah, I could really go for a hot dog now that you mention it. Yeah. So <laughs> could, if there's a possibility of a Soylent Green situation, then mm-hmm. I think that's more disturbing uh, then uh, if they just contain uh, cancer-causing agents, people will look at them and be like, well, I don't see any cancer. Let's just go for it. Well, if it's it's cancer or heart disease, I mean, it's one of the two top killers in America anyway. So, I mean, the hot dog wasn't doing you any good. We all knew that. Right. Chances are you were going to get it from something anyway. You might as well enjoy the ride. All right. Next up on Doomer Duh, Kenny G attempting to set a world record for holding a single note for over an hour. Doom or Duh? Oh, Doom. Now, I don't know enough about Kenny G. So there is a breathing there is a breathing technique called circular breathing where you simultaneously are able to uh, take in air through your nose and expel it through your mouth, uh, thus allowing you to hold a note for a very long period of time. Aha. See, that was my question, because it would seem like then you could hold your breath infinitely. It would. Well, it's not necessarily holding your breath. It's processing air. Like okay. infinite, like it, it's just right, a. Right. But so, but so as a, in that in that way, uh, you could play the note conceivably forever, right? Uh, theoretically, I'm assuming there it, it's it takes a, a bit of a physical discipline or stamina, like any kind of hiccup would screw you up. I see, L- like literally a hiccup. I see, but so in theory, anyone could learn this and master it. Yes, but the, the so yeah, so this is more a test of how long you're willing to put up with the contest than of how long you can actually go without breathing normally. Do you know who the previous world record holder is? Is it that magician that likes to hang upside down inside of frozen boxes? No, it's Kenny G. He's trying to break his own record for charity. 
Uh, ben, I was All a little right. disappointed. I was setting you up for the line. I thought Kenny G was a one-note artist his entire career. But um, Oh, yeah. I totally missed that one. <laughs> All right. Next up on Doom or Duh, Jeb Bush's flailing campaign, despite having the most money and endorsements. Doom or Duh? And I'm gonna go with Doom only because it goes against the establishment. He was supposed to be the presumptive nominee this whole time. He's got the money. He's got the family name. On paper, he should be the best candidate, and he is going against what we know of shallow politics by sucking. Normally, that <laughs> has never stopped anyone. So the, uh, yes, it's very cynical, and for not the reasons one might expect one to fail. But his failure is coming as a surprise. He can't even muster enough b- bother to look like he gives a crap, uh, which is really all that he needs with his inherited resources. Well, and uh, the only thing that doesn't surprise me about this is it's kind of the Republican tradition for the next guy to come in line. You know, he's maybe been in the party for a really long time, has run before, has not gotten the nomination. Uh, we saw that with Mitt Romney in 08 to 2012. So I feel like maybe if Bush had been on the scene... In 2012, we would have been like, well, maybe we should have chosen him, and then the Republicans would have swarmed to him. Although, in this atmosphere of the uh, the kind of upended Republican Party, uh, what with the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus and all that, wonderful, wonderful, all those wonderful, wonderful people, yes, of you never know uh, what, it, what it would have been. True. All right, next up on Doom or Duh, ESPN shuttering their prestige project, Grantland, Doom or Duh? Uh, point of clarification, why are they shuttering it? Do we know? Uh, essentially, there was a huge exodus uh, when Bill Simmons uh, left over the next couple months. Uh, they lost a ton of writers, and they really haven't found anyone to helm it with any kind of direction. And this kind of goes hand-in-hand with the failure of the... Uh, uh, it's, it was dubbed the Black Grantland that was supposed to be headed by Jason Whitlock, and that's been a complete and utter... Uh, cluster mess throughout its entire it, like they've published like two stories I think since I uh, for in the last two years uh, so it seems like a lot of their prestige literary projects for ESPN are floundering so answer the question doom or dumb gonna go with duh okay um, because I think that's just the fickle nature of the internet in general yeah, and it it's not like uh, Simmons has stopped kind of producing this kind of content now he's just doing it without the ESPN umbrella to support him correct all right, Ben, Doom or Duh, other news networks critiquing CNBC for their shoddy, supposedly shoddy GOP debate coverage. Doom or Duh? Duh. They all like to critique each other. They all like to hate on each other. Whether or not their criticisms are justified, They some of them just might be. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there was a lot of blame to go around. And uh, I'm surprised that uh, various news networks with a known partisan sway are chosen to host these things at all, you would think that would cast a pallor over the uh, the objectivity, uh, regardless of whatever's going on. Well, you know those liberal media elites, though, would not give them the, the time of day if they were to uh, appear on some other outlet. Uh, I suppose you're right. The uh, the thing that, I mean, to me, it's it's such a conflict of interest. I understand, like, it's not like... Fox or um, or ABC News or anything like that or CNN. Uh, it's not like it's coming from management to critique those. I'm sure there are independent uh, uh, editorials being written or something like that. But it just seems a little inside baseball that uh, or maybe the pot calling the kettle black uh, for them to come coming down so harshly from what I've read over the past couple of days. 
True. Yes, that is true. All right, finally, Ben, you're familiar with the, I think we've talked about this before on this show, uh, the service Twitch TV, yes? Uh, have we? It's a uh, service where you can watch people live playing video games and hear commentary over it. Oh, perhaps we have. I'm only vaguely familiar, but go ahead. Well, Twitch TV is launching a new uh, creative channel for people that are not necessarily playing video games, but actually doing creative acts and uh, and and creating either new media or new products, and you were able to watch those. And to celebrate that, they're streaming every episode of Bob Ross's The Joy of Painting. Doom or duh? Doom in a good way. Okay. In a nostalgic way. I think everyone loves Bob Ross, if only for um, the nostalgic factor. Clarify this for me, if you would, because uh, my girlfriend and I have had this this debate. Isn't there an episode where he painted a unicorn that got stuck on an aircraft carrier? Uh, as I have not watched every single one, uh, I cannot verify that. It, okay. It would I'm... not seem to be within his uh, his wheelhouse, as okay. it were. Um, I did watch one episode of it accidentally. Uh, there was a link to it in something I was reading, and I clicked on it, and I, just the intent to watch like a couple minutes because I hadn't seen it since I was a little kid. It used to always come on after Sesame Street, and I would fall asleep because the dulcet tones of Bob Ross uh, sure. relax you in a way that very few things can. Mm-hmm. And I ended up watching the entire half-hour show without even realizing it. It, it oh, lulls yeah. you into this this sense of security. It also made me profoundly sad that I can't imagine something that genuine and that um, encouraging um, to ever be on any kind of TV ever again, for adults yes. at least. Like it, it, it was so innocent uh, in watching it, and he is genuinely encouraging you, and genuinely a, seems very sweet uh, when he's doing that. That I like the the I, that seems so alien to any form of entertainment now that it was very depressing. Yes, that's a good point. Interesting. So, do you think if there was a new show that was that non-judgmental? That it would just fail immediately because everyone loves to yell at everyone else? I just think there would be no hook for it. Like, you would need to have someone, you would need to have, like, a celebrity do it or some kind of, like, it was, um, like, someone on the name recognition of, like, a Thomas Kincaid, even though, you know, that's a joke. But, um, like, like an artist like that where it has, like, such mass uh, and uh, middle America appeal, maybe then you would get people. But it, it just seems, I mean, again, it was on PBS, though, so it never really had to care about ratings. For the most part, so it, maybe that was an outlier even then. Perhaps, but you're right. There, is, Bob Lo- Bob Ross is a singular figure in Unicorn on Aircraft. <laughs> in the one I was watching, it was the very first episode. He was drawing, uh, shockingly, uh, he was drawing trees. There was uh, yes. a sunshine, and there was a path leading to some water. That sounds about right. Yeah. Although it, it was also interesting, though, because it's in standard def, I couldn't tell if he was doing something that was really great and it was supposed to be kind of impressionistic or if it was just the fact that I'm, you know, I'm watching it on this, uh, you know, 3K uh, MacBook and I'm watching like a 480p downscaled, uh, like, rip from a VHS. I'm not sure. So, yeah, you're watching it like one eighth of the resolution. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be like a thumb uh, thumbnail if I was actually watching it uh, natively on the screen. Wow. All right, Ben, are you ready for a little Apocalypse Revisited? Oh, yes. All right, we have an update on the Fantasy TV Failure Draft. Oh, all right. We got, we got uh, let's get some news. None of, not one of our draft picks, but the TV show Blood and Oil has had its order trimmed to 10 episodes, thereby signaling that it's for sure going to be over at the end yeah. of the season. Uh, but more importantly, another one of your draft picks has struck oil 
if you will. <laughs> okay. The player has also had its order trimmed to 10. That was the one that featured Wesley Snipes, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that was my first overall pick. Yes, that was your first overall pick. Not quite as uh, prescient as the Minority Report pick, which... Uh, I don't even I don't know if that's going to even get the the dignity of a 10 episode run. Uh but uh, the player yes, trim back to 10. So you're 2 for 3 so far. Uh what was your do you remember what your second one was? I have the list somewhere around here. Uh let's see. Your se- I, or, I got it right here. Your second one was Code Black, which I do believe is doing quite well. Okay. Fine. I heard I heard chatter about that show. Really? Yes. How from- is it any different than any of the other medical dramas. But then, by that logic, no medical drama would ever be on TV. Yes. <laughs> when was I, the last time any medical drama was ever original in any way? Here's the thing, though. Medicine is so... Um, one, it's something that we're always going to experience in our lives, so there's always going to be a personal interest to it. But on the other hand, it's also um, entirely foreign and especially more and more as it becomes more incomprehensible to a lot of people that there's always going to be this interest of oh there are these people that have this special knowledge that will impact my life in some way i want to know more about them so i can always i can understand why there was interest in it even though i i think the only medical drama i ever remotely got into was house and that was more for uh laurie's performance house was house was a little bit different because at least he wasn't um his thing wasn't like I'm an, a noble person to help people. He was the opposite, uh, begrudgingly helping people. So I it, mean, it's kind of like though, like de- any kind of detective show, like genius detective shows. Like it's just like another spin on like, oh, he's OCD, or oh, he's pretending he's a psychic, or oh, he uses his brain. Like, like those are all of the. You can only spin that so many times. Where it's like, oh, he's the cranky doctor. Oh, he's the really happy doctor. Oh, he's the doctor that dresses like a clown. Like, there's only so many different ways you can spin that. At least that is a spin. What is Code Black's spin? It, the spin on that, I believe, is that it's supposed to be very visceral. It's supposed to get more into the, the grisly nature of working in an ER. Okay. I, I You know, it's it, I guess it doesn't try and sugarcoat it as much as something like perhaps a Grey's Anatomy uh, with all of their uh, uh, interpersonal relationship drama that drives that show. Yeah. Well, yes. Well, anyway, the player t- made it too easy. To be the pick. <laughs> I'm very disappointed so far. It looks like not a, maybe maybe some of them will be canceled after one full season, but uh, we'll see how my picks go. So far, a commanding lead for you in the uh, the early going of the TV failure draft. Well, what about uh, the grinder and uh, what was the other one? Grandfathered, I know, yes. got picked up for a full season, like committed. What? Yes, even though the the what? ratings have been go- the ratings have been going down, but that is uh, is going. Uh, it looks like it's at least going one season. So if it gets canceled after that. I think I get one point. I, I might have picked the grinder as my uh, as my pick to uh, head into the Great Blue Yon. No, the grinder was my should be canceled, but we'll go seven seasons. So we'll see okay. about that. Oh, so you actually may be uh, onto something. Although I I highly doubt that. For the sake of humanity, Ben, are you ready for a little apocalypse check? Oh yes. All right, Ben. An old saw that's uh, has come into prominence once again. Actor Will Wheaton, known from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, posted on Twitter complaining that the Huffington Post wanted to publish a blog that he had previously posted, and when asked about compensation, he was told that the blogger network for HuffPo does not get paid. This brings up the question, does a publication on a website that gets more traffic than every other uh, newspaper 
other than the New York Times suffice for compensation, or is this the exploitation of desperate labor leading us down the road to the apocalypse? Now, hold on. Point of clarification, because yes. I'm not familiar with the Huffington Post. I, I believe it is a smut rag. It's like the <laughs> internet uh, will publish anything without a filter, so there is no uh, uh, reverence for truth at all. Um, but as they, far as the- they do do their own independent reporting. It definitely has a spin to it. Uh, and for some clarification, their reporting uh, arm of their publication are paid and uh, are generally held to journalistic standards. It's strictly the blog network, which I think is what you're thinking of, and they do publish a ton of bloggers, uh, and that that does tend to be more of BuzzFeedy kind of material. I see, because every time I've re- I've heard about the Huffington Post, it's always in the context of one of those stupid BuzzFeed type lists. So, well, okay. I mean, it's it's exactly, I'm not exactly, but it's a very similar business model to BuzzFeed, where BuzzFeed has a very serious news outlet where they're doing, they have foreign correspondents that are reporting on very serious issues overseas or domestically or doing very hard-hitting investigative pieces, but they get all their traffic off 27 pictures of cats that just couldn't give a shit or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So... There is this weird dynamic between the two. I think HuffPo generally tends to be more typically tabloid in a lot of their blog uh, network where it leads into celebrity gossip uh, or style or, or those kind of uh, categories. But the fact of the matter is it's it's a more heavily trafficked uh, 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 platform than BuzzFeed than any other newspaper save the New York Times, which, you know, has this kind of uh, the newspaper of America kind of feel for it. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's in the top uh, 40 most visited websites in the world, or that may be domestically, but it's it's a super heavily trafficked website. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Ben, as someone who uh, is is involved in a creative industry, yes, would getting that kind of exposure be worth more than like your standard fee for a piece? To me, I would say no, okay. because it only perpetuates the culture of notoriety, but no. Uh, you can't make a living, you can't have a business based on that. So even people who have hundreds of thousands of hits on YouTube and may be ubiquitous uh, for their 15 minutes of internet meme fame don't generate any money from that. So if you're doing it as a hobby, fine. You know, If you just like to be semi-famous online, fine. But that doesn't generate, I mean, that doesn't translate into any kind of income. I mean, you have to be, like on YouTube, you have to be so... Um, so viewed so many times. I mean, it's like in the millions and millions of times on a, such a regular basis to generate anything uh, that it's really, for all practical pur- practical purposes, impossible. So for the well, I, I, Post, I don't know about that. There are people that make a living being, I mean, a very successful living, uh, being like professional YouTubers. Now, I know what you're talking about is more of a viral situation. And then you would get like a one-time chunk if it, like, if, you know, if you get a million hits over the course of, or a million views over the course of a week or something, you'd probably get like a one-time payout. And as it, you know, it, it peters out, that would come to a trickle or an overall stop. I think YouTube is kind of the exception to that, where YouTube does kind of re- reward uh, both it gives you some, at least some kind of monetary recognition if you reach a certain level of uh, of Which notoriety. What? what level is that? Uh, I, they, they don't release transparent numbers, but uh, I mean, ah, uh, very convenient. I it's, I think it's such a small percentage that they want you to think like, oh, I'll just go viral, and then so many well, people will watch it, I, and I'll be sad. I, but I don't think 
I mean, no, I think no, it's it, a you, you won't be of a percent of you, users. You won't be set, but I had, uh, one of my cousins actually had a video that they just posted for family, and it ended up getting picked up by a couple blogs, and they got, uh, I want to say, over a million views over the course of maybe a month or so. And they, they you know, they, they did get kind of a decent chunk, a one-time you know, not inconsiderable chunk of change, probably uh, what you would get for, you know, writing like a long form piece for a website or something like that. Again, they weren't trying to uh, make that become anything. They just did it. They just thought it was funny and they posted it up and said, you know, sent us the link and said, haha, this is so cool. Uh, and then it ended up blowing up. Uh, but uh, with something like I, I could see, though, something where you're just starting out, maybe you're doing it part time. And if I I mean, if I was a part-time writer, you know, I have a full-time job. I just, you know, have my own personal blog and HuffPo reaches out to me and wants to publish that, you know, that may be worth more than getting two, three hundred dollars uh, compensation, you know, and then have it posted where no one is going to see it. I mean, the, the I think the issue a lot of people have is, is that Huffington Post makes enough money that they could yeah. probably do a kickback or maybe only do a kickback for stuff that's highly trafficked. You know, do yeah. it kind of a YouTube style. I can understand. I did have to take some exception, though, to I mean, it's a legitimate uh, uh, critique of Huffington Post business model. And I certainly am sympathetic to people like I want creative people that create interesting things to get paid. Uh, but when it's Will Wheaton kind of uh, going to bat for this, he has three million Twitter followers like he could publish uh, something on his personal blog with one banner ad and make a decent chunk of change off of that just on his following alone, let alone, you know, needing a, a check from Huffington Post to republish some of his work. So I like that to me kind of rubs me a little bit the wrong way in that he really doesn't need that. I understand he's going to bat for everyone else. It does seem like, I don't know. I, I think there are some people that are willing to make that trade off because, I mean, if you if you become someone who writes something, has a interesting blog on that's run through the Huffington Post, you can you can spin that off. That that is not worthless. I'm not Maybe. saying it's I'm not saying it's it's a, a substitute for payment. I'm definitely not arguing that the Huffington Post, you know, should uh, not be uh, be allowed to not pay anyone. I do think it's kind of shady. Yes. But on the other hand. Access to a giant platform like that is not worthless. And I don't think we can, you know, everyone wants to say, oh, I can't pay my rent with, you know, with notoriety. And that's 100 percent. That's absolutely right. But in a in a Internet economy, that can be that, that is an asset that you can use to spin to make money. Admittedly, it's not a one to one thing and you may get screwed in it and someone may not follow you, but it's it's not a worthless commodity. Well, but in regards to Will Wheaton. In addition to sticking up for everyone, there somewhere there has to be a uh, deterrent to places like Huffington Post just deciding to republish everything and re leveraging uh, their name to be able to get away with it for free. So when you hear of any well-known media um, personality or brand, like you know Lena Dunham at one point wanted to. Uh, have like assistance or something on her book tour or something and wasn't going to pay them. I mean, any, there's, like you said, there's no reason they can't pay something. Even if it was a pittance, the act of paying would demonstrate an awareness of the value of the content that they are republishing. For That's them true. to presumptively take it for free, saying, hey, uh, we're so awesome, we're just going to take it for free. Well, and, they're, they're, uh, not taking, they're not taking it. it. They're either, you're either giving it to them and saying, hey, would you be interested in this? Or 
you uh, they they will like send you an email and say, "Hey, Will Wheaton, can we publish this?" And you're at liberty to say no. Like if if you well, think your content is worth something and you want to try and monetize it on your own, you're more than welcome to do so. It's not like they're uh, reposting stuff. There are other sites that do shady stuff where they'll basically post whole excerpts from very interesting works, and then people totally get screwed because they don't get the recognition or any of the hits on their own personal sites or yeah. anything that generates ads. There are other sites like that, but not Huffington Post doesn't explicitly do that. But they're still kind of bullying you into saying, listen, like, we're the biggest game in town. Give us your stuff or else, you know, you toil away in anonymity. Mm-hmm. But why can't – I don't understand why it's so hard for them to just – to give you something. And the fact that they want everything for free is uh, to ignore the two-way street of publishers and content creators. It just seems very uh, dismissive of them. And uh, if if nobody tries to create a filter there, then they're just going to keep doing it. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they should be paying. Every publisher should be compensating to some degree for the content that they want to publish. Because if they go to Will Wheaton and they want to publish it, obviously they have some value. They have, they have found some value in this uh, piece of content. So to then say, eh, we're not going to pay you for it is a little disingenuous on their part. And so I mean, that I'm is sure true. Right. When, when they come, when they come to you and when they come to you and establish that it is, it's worth something to them to come to you to publish it. That does seem a little shady. Yeah. The, well, the other, but the other problem is, is that as big of a following and, and he certainly probably has a much larger internet footprint than some other uh, celebrities that post on there. You have people like Martin Sheen or Julianne Moore or other, uh, you know, semi, either A-list or high up there uh, Hollywood celebrities that are regularly posting. I think Alec Baldwin does it too, posting blog stuff, uh, blog stuff, geez, uh, posting uh, articles and, and essays and stuff like that on there. You could argue that maybe Will Wheaton's is almost certainly better written uh, or, or or that the stuff by Julianne Moore is written by her publicist or something like that. But they they do have a lot of big names that are willing to play their ball, maybe either because of a relationship they previously had with them uh, or because they like the platform or because they have a particular spin that they want to get out there or because they're too lazy to main. You know, they're, they're an older type of Hollywood celebrity that they're not going to be setting up their own personal blog. And this is kind of a substitute for that. Yes. Right. But the fact that they just want to subsume anything they can uh, and just not even consider, uh, you know, the value to the writer seems Mm -hmm. a little uh, a little short sighted on their part. Well, but let me let me pose. I I kind of already asked you this, but I I wanted to bring up a specific situation that this kind of reminded me the opposite of. Okay. Um, I we had discussed and I will keep this strictly anonymous. Uh, you had worked on a, a as a film editor. You had edited yes. a project uh, for someone, and for whatever reason, it, it it was not released in any way. But you were paid for that project. Okay, is that preferable to you, where you put in a lot of work for something and you receive a fee for it, but you don't? That's not something that you maybe had thought was going to get a wider release and maybe would have gotten some traction, uh, and it could be used in your portfolio. Uh, and then to have that not happen, or would you is is that preferable to something like the Huffington Post, where something one expects you to do valuable work for free in just the name of exposure? Well, all I would ask is that the person, the publisher or the distributor, mm-hmm. recognizes the effort and the value inherent in the work that they okay. want to distribute, because they obviously see value in it. So it necessarily need not be cash. Uh, it necessarily need not be exposure. 
But when they say, hey, we want to publish this, we're not, not going to pay you, there's such a divide there between what they think the value is and what they're willing to compensate you for. You know, yeah, even if, you know, so that's, that's the divide that doesn't sit well with me. If they didn't want to pay you, but uh, they had some other mechanism, or if, you know, you got X number of hits, then they would, you know, I don't know. Yeah, Just that's the thing that doesn't make sense to me. Recognize, like, yeah. if, if, it, if it goes viral, like, there should be some kind of mechanism for allowing some kind of compensation or or even if it's just uh like a guarantee of future access to that pla like that might be useful like if you knew like if you published something maybe then you would get more access or, or you know maybe the possibility of of becoming like a paid uh editorialist or something like that that would be even a pathway to making it a little bit more respectable yeah but I, I but i agree like it's i don't think it's um as black and white as some people have said but there there has to be some kind of uh uh value like a value for value proposition if you're giving them the value of your content they should give you something more than just slapping it on their site yeah even if they said after a, a minimum of however many hundreds of thousands of hits we'll give you a fraction of a cent for each hit thereafter like even that would be a nice chunk of money for most of the lesser known writers and that would just acknowledge that there is some value there but yeah it does yeah it's it's uh to be so restrictive about the way they publish, but then also to not, you know, the Huffington Post doesn't have the, their own well-known group of writers generating this kind of blogging buzz, do they? So obviously they need to go outside themselves. So it just would be nice to get a little recognition for the value of the work. Um, Although when you have when you have platforms like BuzzFeed, which I haven't heard the same complaint level against them, it may be the same situation, but the fact that I haven't heard that leads me to believe that maybe there is some sort of compensation and, you know, maybe that will, you know, that will be the market correcting where, you know, the Huffington Post will maybe get worse and worse content from their blogging network as there are other outlets where people can get paid for their for their services. That would be interesting. That would be something to revisit. Most definitely. All right, Ben, next up on the Apocalypse Check, the World Series may be over by the time that this episode posts. There's a, uh, you know, it could be a final game uh, on tonight. We're recording this uh, Sunday afternoon. But uh, with the Mets and the Kansas City Royals in the World Series, I don't want to say they've been traditional bottom feeders. Certainly the Royals have struggled uh, since, uh, what, the late 80s, uh, since the, uh, what, the... 1985, since they won the World Series. Yes. Or 85? Yeah, the last World Series. So kind of been a generation since the, uh, or several, a couple generations since the Royals were kind of uh, on anyone's radar. And the Mets, even though they went to the World Series in 2000, I believe, in the Subway Series, uh, haven't won a series again since the mid 80s and have kind of been, I would say they're both afterthoughts, MLB afterthoughts traditionally. Oh, yes. Uh, particularly when you have the Mets and uh, the Yankees sharing the same market. So the fact that we see both of these uh, franchises, especially the Mets, kind of coming out of nowhere uh, to be these the, this vital force in the National League, sign of the apocalypse that Major League Baseball, one of the stodgiest and entrenched, uh, you know, uh, a famously called an unfair game uh, in Moneyball, is suddenly uh, reaching a point of parity, sign of the apocalypse? Sign of the apocalypse, but I wouldn't call it a point of parody because mm -hmm. the, the, what I don't understand is why now? Because if it's a question of, uh, okay, so usually in most sports, when you're really bad, they say we're going to do a rebuild, we're going to get better through the draft, we're going to you know bring young players into the system, develop them, and as they get better, you know we'll add a free agent here and there, 
to round out the team and will build this competitive team over the course of a few years. But usually once a team is a bottom feeder, you can start that process because you generally have high draft picks. Or if you're a team like the Yankees, you just throw a bunch of money at whoever you can and get better much more quickly with, you know, totally uh, non-homegrown talent. But being bad for 29 and 30 years, respectively, as these two teams are, the timing seems weird. Because if they were going to rebuild through the draft, they've been bad forever. Why haven't they done it already? And and uh, I think in both of these cases, they have done that, not as opposed to like a you know, just signing everybody well, from the, from the Mets did make some key acquisitions. Uh, Cespedes, I know, was a okay. big acquisition for from them the midseason, but it wasn't like they were completely out of it, you know, previous and that made their team. But that may have been the straw that stirred the drink, so to speak. Yeah. So why did it take them 30 years? Because the other thing about these teams, with the brief exception of the Mets in 2000, they were never good. It's not like they got better and they were competitive and they were kind of up and down and other teams kind of came along behind them. Both of these teams were really bad for most of the last three decades, and suddenly they're competitive. And it just seems like uh, that just seemed, the timing of that just seems weird to me. Well, it could be, uh, I mean, with baseball in particular, you get into things like uh, revenue sharing. I know it's not so much a thing for the Mets, but in terms of Kansas City, you know, a smaller market all of a sudden has access to a little bit more stability and funds. It is remarkable, though, that usually you would associate that with maybe having a new stadium and a renewed interest in the fan base or maybe a big name uh, a coach that they hire on or a big name player. But they really built it from the ground up. And I have, I mean, it, it has to be, uh, just a just a quality effort at building a team for them in particular because it's not again it's not like they went out and made super splashy moves I mean they did it with the fundamentals of the board like as boring as it sounds there's there's no like secret sauce I don't even think there's like a weird money ball thing I think it was just sound decision making by over the course of uh, probably close to a decade uh, by their their management team and bringing in quality management and bringing in you know uh, finding really great pitching that they can afford and putting that in the field. True, but again, I mean, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure George Brett has been the the team executive mm -hmm. since almost 20 years. So still, it just seems like you know they had high draft picks then. Why didn't you know? Why didn't? Why is this taking so long to develop? Why didn't this happen 10 years ago? It just seems interesting. Uh, and maybe it's just because it's so hard to do, and put so, well, a lot of picks don't pan out. But it just seems, um, it just seems. Uh, just like very specific timing, which just seems well. May odd. Maybe for the Royals specifically, they are playing at least this year in a diminished division. Uh, what with the oh, yeah. the Paper Tigers, uh, the Wilting Indians, and uh, the the other. I mean, I, actually, Minnesota is probably what the second most competitive team. Yeah, uh, not even close. Still, which is which is still very bizarre. Uh, that they were a surprise, even just being mediocre. Uh, so it 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 may have been a a process of the division slowly weakening and allowing them uh, to kind of find their own space. Uh, but it you know it maybe it, it's some sort of improved analytics, which is really bizarre because. Uh, I think it was 538 earlier this year, did a study uh, across the last uh, 30 years and did find a, a distinct correlation between the amount of money spent on the team and your uh, the, the probability of winning uh, of, of over uh, the course of a season. So it's not like Kansas City is going out and spending. Their their budget has gone up a little bit as they've tried to retain uh, some players uh, over the past of the course two years, I want to say. But it's not like they're even in the top, 
a half, I think, of payrolls in Major League Baseball. So that is baffling in and of itself. For the Mets, I think uh, this particular year, I think they saw that they had a window and uh, by, by the acquisitions they made in the middle of the season to kind of take them from good to great. Uh, required certainly some courage from their front office, but they play in a big market. They can fill a stadium. They, you know, they, they have they have a city that likes to support baseball. So I don't think it's as that big of a swing uh, for them uh, using the metaphor of the sport we're talking about. Do you think that is baseball becoming the turnaround sport? Because it kind of used to be. Uh, you could probably look to football as one of the biggest sports for big turnarounds, where you would see a yes. team go in the matter of two seasons, going from being the worst to the best. Uh, basketball is kind of unique in that it's the only sport of the big three. Uh, and if you want to include hockey, I guess hockey and basketball kind of share this where you can have a transcendent talent and that can transform a team rather rapidly yes. uh, by just having mediocre to halfway decent uh, uh, supporting talent around them. They can be uh, teams that can contend. I think we've both seen that with our uh, respective teams that we enjoy, the uh, Penguins and the Cavaliers, the Cavaliers twice now. Uh, so I, I don't think it's as unusual to see all of a sudden one move being made in basketball and seeing that flop. But football is, used to be the sport where, especially I, I think it was the NFC South, used to every year they would have a team go from worst to first. So yeah. it, it, do we want baseball to be that, though? I mean, baseball to me is that's one of the appeals is that it's kind of a, a slow moving game. I, I don't know. I, I think that would if this becomes the norm where we're seeing uh, bottom feeders or afterthoughts all of a sudden becoming the best teams in baseball. I don't I don't know if I can deal with that. <laughs> well, it does seem like it's happening more if you even though they haven't gotten over the hump. Teams like uh, Pittsburgh, had, which was terrible for 20 years. The last three years have made the playoffs, and this year you had Houston. Yeah, which uh, who who came, really came out of nowhere. I mean, they yeah. lost uh, over a hundred games, I think, last year. Yeah, so uh, it's not. It can't just be a case of they sign one or two free agents, turn it around. No, you really not. need uh, your developed prospects to uh, to really come through. And um, it's it's uh, like you said. I don't think it happens quite that way in other sports the uh, two examples that come to mind in hockey which were sort of fluky or or misleading is on uh, the last two years colorado uh a couple of years ago they hired patrick waugh the legendary goalie as their coach and they came flying they went from last place to first place they made the playoffs things looked uh, like they turning around they had a lot of young very high draft picks and it looked like that team was going to be good and then uh, they immediately crashed back to earth and were terrible the following year and uh, similar things happening with the Calgary Flames for the uh, for the um, deep cuts uh, in sports <laughs> references here, but uh, it's not it's not like where these teams in baseball, like the Royals uh, last year, they'd been okay prior to that, no, but no, last they year they didn't. really took off and they're yeah. still good. That that wasn't a fluke, uh, and that wasn't uh, like they just took advantage of being in a weak division or something. Like they actually built built themselves into a good team very quickly in a way that I don't think you can see in other sports. And I think it is good because it gives every city hope every year to be relevant. And uh, for teams uh, as baseball, of yours and mine, where for years our cities weren't <laughs> that competitive, it's always nice to have the hope going into the year. And I think generally, like, the more good teams there are in a league, just the better it's going to be for everyone. Um, Although, doesn't that but, dim dim diminish, like, some of the rivalries or some of the... Um, 
uh, some of the traditional stories that we tell ourselves. Like I, I do think baseball is best when I, I really love to see the Yankees lose and it's really oh, hard yeah. for them to lose. And so I, I feel like, you know, when you have these big uh, kind of legendary teams that aren't that great and aren't, and, and maybe aren't going to be the best teams in baseball a lot of the time. I don't know if the sport is best served in that respect. I see. So you believe they need a villain to root against, to, yeah, to I, unite I, everyone else. I am a firm believer because, I mean, for me, sports, the more I think about it, sports for me is all about being able to build a narrative and build a story uh, to kind of uh, to, to base around the individual play that I also enjoy. But to have that, that's what gets me watching every single week, especially for baseball with a season that's so long. I mean, the reason I watch so much baseball uh, of the playoffs this year was because I was fascinated by the story of the Cubs and I really wanted to see, you know, what would happen there. And even them losing was very interesting to me because again, you have this story of this, you know, literally century long futility. We didn't even talk about the Cubs in terms of, you know, suddenly turning stuff around. Uh, but uh, it, without that, I certainly wouldn't have watched uh, nearly as much of the playoffs as I did. Yeah. 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 It is always interesting when a team like, cause like the, when a team is known for, something either being really good or really bad or like when, then, when we were in college uh, the red sox for example i remember yes. we were glued to the tv because it was the the most compelling thing because again while the play on the field was very interesting it was the drama of the narrative that was making every single play so meaningful and you think that may be undermined if there's a uh, less certainty about year-to-year carryover of a talent of a team I, I don't th- one. I don't doubt that ESPN and other media organizations have the capacity to build those narratives. I'm not nearly that naive to think that there won't they there won't be interesting stories generated about different teams. Uh, and you know, just the fact that uh, the Cubs are, look to be good for many years to come now. They they looks like they have a really s- a solid foundation. We'll be hearing more about lifting the curse uh, as years uh, as the years go by in the next couple seasons. But um, I, I I think some of these long historic ones might be. Uh, going by the wayside well but isn't that based on a team's identity more so than literally their play on the field like um you know you had uh in the early 90s the bad boys of the detroit pistons you know like that was it wasn't so much that they were such a good team as it was they were a bunch of jerks who, would, who <laughs> wouldn't be afraid people. yeah yeah who wouldn't be afraid to throw some elbows in the paint uh, and so, you know, whether or not they won or lost the game, it was more interesting to report on, you know, who they were beating up or what kind of fights they got into. So as long as an, as long as every team has their identity, I think that's what keeps them relevant more so than, uh, you know, the literal quality of play on the field. So I think as long as a team gets better or worse and can be, uh, you know, pegged as that identity, I think it would still be interesting to watch. Uh, even from game to game, if if the play isn't that consistent. So now that uh, kind of all of the teams that we've referred at least been relatively recently good, is there a team out there that's n- still a kind of a laughing stock that you would like to see make a, a rebound? Yeah, the Lions again. <laughs> I, I'm talking strictly about baseball. Oh, strictly about baseball. Okay. Um, interesting I, I will give you mine i would like to yes. see the padres become uh, a competitive team again okay only because i love the logo of the friar that's swinging a bat i just think that's the silliest and stupidest logo in all of sports yes. and i would love to see that more prominently featured okay well that's good i guess i would have said i guess i don't know enough i follow baseball closely enough outside of the tigers to really know but i would say i would have said the royals previously yeah. just because <laughs> 
they're so bad and they were just always a doormat and especially when your team has has also been the doormat not so long ago yes you know what it's like and for um, a city like kansas city which is a nice midwestern town where uh they're not known for being jerks like the people in new york or philadelphia or boston or yeah. any of those places uh you, you know you or even like um before i had any association with the cleave I root for the Browns just because they were so endearingly terrible. <laughs> we were brothers in arms with the Lions. We really. were, even we didn't know each other yet. So, uh, uh, I didn't, yeah, as long as the city is not known for being full of jerks, it's nice to see any team that has long been a basement dweller suddenly have hope. Wow, so it's kind of weird to leave it uh, vaguely on a notion of hope. Uh, it's a, kind of a first, I think, for the edifice of our demise. But I think that's going to bring us just about to the end of the episode, Ben. Are you satisfied that we've uh, depressed people enough, or do you feel like this was way too uplifting? Hmm. Well, in that regard, I guess we haven't done our job, which depresses me, so perhaps we're there. This is true. It's a it's a circular cycle, uh, which is what a cycle is. It's circular. Yes. So if you uh, want to reach us, uh, just a quick little bit of housekeeping as we end the episode here. We were having some trouble with our podcast feed, so I apologize about that. If you didn't hear the live episode, it should be in your feed now. The situation for that episode has been resolved, and we're working to get the entire back catalog fixed as well. But if you want to hear an episode, it's always available at eofrd.tumblr.com. We have all of those links are working just fine, so you can click on them. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash edifice of our demise, and uh, eof at edifice demise on Twitter. Uh, that was almost coherent. Uh, I do apologize. And if you run across any issues uh, with the feed, remember, you can always shoot us an email, uh, edificeofourdemise at gmail.com, or if you just have a topic that you think me or Ben would like to sink our teeth into. So, Ben, any final words of wisdom for our audience before we take off? Wisdom? Ha! Huh? <laughs> wow, Ben, uh, your, your biting laughter cuts to the core, and I appreciate that. All right, well, remember, everybody, until we meet next week... Have a super sparkly day. Unless the apocalypse gets you first. Holler. <laughs> <laughs>